Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. I want to invite you to join me in 2 Thessalonians this morning. You can open up to it, or if you're using a digital Bible this morning, go ahead and open up your Bible apps to 2 Thessalonians. You heard Jerry say each week in this Living Letters series, we are going to be looking at one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And this week, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be taking what I like to call a 1,000-foot view of the book of 2 Thessalonians, which means we're going to step back, we're going to zoom out and see what we can learn from this book as a whole. And some weeks, we'll be looking at An entire letter that Paul wrote some weeks will be taking a key passage and looking at just a key passage from one of his letters. But today, I want us to look at all of 2 Thessalonians. And you heard Jerry say, throughout the week, we are challenging and we're encouraging you to spend time throughout the week leading up to Sunday reading through these letters. We've put a reading plan together together for you in the journals. If you haven't grabbed one yet, you can do that on your way out this morning. But we're challenging you to study leading up to Sunday because there's simply way too much information in one of these letters for us to cover in one message. But as I was studying Second Thessalonians with this 1,000-foot view in mind over the past couple of weeks... A scene from the movie Avengers Endgame kept coming to my mind. Now, if you've never seen the movie, one, you're missing out, and I'm going to spoil a little bit of it for you, but it's been out for a few years, so I don't really feel bad about that. At the beginning of the final battle, Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor face off against Thanos. Thanos is... The big bad that this has been building up to this final fight, he's literally wiped out half of the life in the universe, and the Avengers have put together their plan to bring life back, to bring these back to life. And this final battle begins with these three key Avengers, these three leaders, facing off against Thanos. Well... Thanos is so strong that it doesn't take long for him to get Captain America and or to get Iron Man and Thor out of the way. Thor is out of shape and not prepared for a fight. And Iron Man is quickly knocked out. And it leaves just Captain America versus Thanos. And what ensues, in my humble opinion, is one of the greatest scenes in movie history, certainly in comic book history comic book movie history, but even though Captain America puts up a valiant fight, he is no match for Thanos. Thanos destroys his shield, leaving his arm badly wounded, and even though he has no chance, Captain America gets back up. And on one side of the battlefield is Captain America by himself, and on the other side is literally Thanos and his entire army. And this scene reflects these strips of, pan, uh, these panels of comic book. You can't, probably can't read it from where you are. But in that last panel, Captain America is saying to Thanos, as long as one man stands against you, you cannot claim victory. 
And you see, this kept coming back to my mind as I was studying Second Thessalonians with this thousand-foot view because throughout this letter, Paul is encouraging the believers to stand firm in their faith in Jesus. He is encouraging you to stand firm in your faith in Jesus. When persecution and suffering comes, stand firm in your faith in Jesus. And he's encouraging the believers in Thessalonica to continue persevering, to continue standing firm in their faith and to continue growing. And we see this theme played out in each chapter of this short letter from Paul. In chapter 1, he encourages the believers to stand firm in suffering and persecution. In chapter 2, he encourages them to stand firm in their hope of Christ's return. And in chapter 3, he encourages them to stand firm in spiritual disciplines. Now the church at Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17. It consisted of Jews who had converted to following Christ and God-fearing Greeks. And this church in Thessalonica was very important for the advancement of the gospel. And that's because of where Thessalonica was located. Thessalonica was located on the Ignatian Road, which was one of the main roads for travel and commerce and trade at that time. And it was also a port city, which means that tens of thousands of workers, of soldiers, of sailors were constantly coming in and out of Thessalonica. So this church was very important because those that would come in and out of Thessalonica were able to hear the gospel and then take it back home with them to wherever they were from. Paul made a large impact on this church in just a short amount of time and they received this second letter from him only months after receiving 1 Thessalonians. And many of the things that Paul addressed in his first letter still continued. So Paul continues to to urge the Thessalonians to stand firm in suffering and persecution. The persecution at Thessalonica had not stopped. It started when Paul was there. It caused Paul to have to leave and it continued even now. For the Thessalonians, suffering and persecution was really a way of life, which is something, if we're honest, in America today, that's really hard for us to relate to. You know, for me, it was, I, I guess I would call it Suffering Friday when it took $90 to fill up the truck. That was not my favorite part of my Friday morning. But as I was getting dressed this morning, I wasn't afraid that someone was going to storm into God's house and drag me away for preaching the word. It's hard for us to relate to the suffering and the persecution that the Thessalonians endured because they received the gospel through persecution. They were following Jesus even in the face of persecution and suffering and they were hoping that God would deliver them from this persecution. But yet, through it all, their faith continued to grow. In spite of the suffering, in spite of the persecution, their faith continued to grow. The gospel continued to advance. And they continued to grow in loving one another. And because of that, 
Paul constantly thanks God for the church in Thessalonica, for the believers in Thessalonica. Because of that, Paul boasts about these believers with other churches because of their perseverance. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 with me. It reads, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. You see, trying times in the life of, of a believer, times of suffering, draw us closer to the Lord. And it's, it's hard for us on this side of eternity to fully understand how that happens. I, I cannot explain to you why God allows the suffering and persecution. I can't explain to you how God uses that to draw us closer to him. But here's what I do know. Is that through suffering, we are drawn into a closer relationship with our Father. After all, he is the great comforter. He would not be the great comforter if there were not going to be times in life when you needed comforting. Through those difficult seasons of life, in a way that only God can, he draws us closer to him. But I also know, as we see here in Thessalonians, that, suffer, that suffering for the kingdom of God is a proof that you have salvation. You see, Paul tells us here that the Thessalonians are counted worthy of the kingdom of God because of their suffering. Suffering does not earn you salvation. But suffering for the kingdom is a proof that you have salvation. Only faith in Jesus leads to salvation. But because their faith was in Jesus and because they suffered and because they persevered and endured, they were counted worthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. I love what John Stott says when he talks about the way we should view suffering and the way we do view suffering. He says, it takes spiritual discernment to see in a situation of injustice evidence of the just judgment of God. Our habit is to see only the surface appearance and so to make only superficial comments. Why doesn't God do something? We complain. And the answer is that he is doing something and he will go on doing it. He is allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them for a heavenly kingdom. He is allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily. But his just judgment will fall upon them in the end. God is allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them for a heavenly kingdom. You see, suffering does not secure salvation for you. But when you put your faith in Jesus, and then you suffer for the kingdom of God, you can be assured that you have salvation. 
After all, Jesus is our example to follow. We cannot expect to enjoy the glories of Jesus and not also expect to suffer with Jesus. Romans 8, 17 tells us, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, the call to follow Christ is literally that. It's a call to come and follow him. Jesus tells us to follow him. You must take up your cross daily and die to yourself. In our world, we view the cross as a piece of jewelry. Maybe it's it's a pretty thing. It's a decoration. In Jesus' day... They would not have worn a cross around their neck. They would not have put a cross up on the wall of their house. Because the cross was a mark of suffering. And yet Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and come and follow him. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, suffering for the kingdom of God is a proof that we have salvation. And God uses that suffering, God uses our difficult times to mold us into the image of Jesus. So Paul encourages the believers to stand firm in persecution. And he also encourages them to stand firm in the hope of Christ's return. Not only was persecution continuing in the church in Thessalonica, but false teaching was also being spread. And this false teaching that was being spread was the teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. That Christ had returned and the Thessalonians had missed out. Not only were false teachers teaching this, they were also saying, Paul is the one that is teaching this. So the Thessalonians receive this word and it comes to them as Paul is teaching that Christ has already returned and you've missed it. And Paul writes to reassure the Thessalonians that he has not said that. That such teaching is a lie because Christ has not yet returned. And he then encourages them to stand firm in their hope for Christ's return. Let's look in chapter 2 of the first few verses. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So Paul reassures them that the day of the Lord has not yet come. Christ has not yet returned. And then he goes on to tell them what will happen before Christ will return. And this next section in chapter 2 is a difficult section to understand. It's maybe one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to understand in the Bible. So if you were a little confused This week, as you read chapter 2, or if you were reading and thinking, man, I don't really get it, hey, you're in good company. Because there's a lot of people that read this and are like, what are you talking about, Paul? And part of the reason is, what Paul writes here in this letter, it only supports his oral teaching. 
what he's writing here in chapter 2, it only supports what he taught the Thessalonians while he was with them. And there is no doubt that his teaching when he was with them was full and it was detailed and there would not have been holes in it. We don't doubt that because Paul in chapter 2 simply refers back to what he has taught them and says, hey, remember what I taught you when I was with you. In verse 5, it says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So even though this passage is difficult to understand, Paul's main point is very clear here. The day of the Lord has not yet come. Christ has not yet returned because before he returns, there must be a rebellion, or your translation may say an apostasy. There must be a revealing of the man of lawlessness and a taking away of the restrainer of who or what is holding the man of lawlessness back. And what we know about this man of lawlessness is he will be Satan's driving force for this rebellion, for this apostasy. He will be Satan's driving force for it. And he will be unwavering in his opposition to God. He will be against everything of God. He will be against the worship of God. He is lawless because he despises God's word and his destiny is destruction. We know that this man of lawlessness will fight to dethrone God and to destroy human beings. What we don't know is who he is or when he will return. There's been much speculation on who this man of lawlessness is. In my life, I've heard many people take guesses at who the man of lawlessness is. I don't think any of them have been right. At least it hasn't been proven that they were right yet. There have been many guesses on when exactly this will happen, when he will appear and when Christ will return. But that is not why Paul writes this letter. Paul does not write to the Thessalonians to give them a timeline of what the return of Christ will be like, to give a detailed timeline of what the end times will be like. Paul writes to encourage the Thessalonians to remain firm in their hope for Christ's return. And here's one of the reasons I believe he writes this way. If we become focused on who this man of lawlessness is, if we become more focused on determining when Christ returns than who Jesus is, then we only distract people from knowing Christ. We only distract people from serving Jesus. We only distract people from loving like Jesus loves. So let us stand firm in the hope of Christ's return. Look with me starting in verse 3 of chapter 2. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple. Proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth 
and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. You see, Paul's point is clear. The day of the Lord has not yet happened. Christ has not yet returned. So he urges the believers to continue to hope in Christ's return. And the reason he do this, does this is because what you hope for, it drives you. It gives you focus. It affects your decisions. It affects other things that you do. Growing up, my dad had Jeeps. So as a kid, my dream car was a Jeep Wrangler. And I hoped so much when I turned 16 that my dad would buy me a Wrangler. But he wouldn't because at that time they were easy to turn over. And he said, I'm not buying you a Jeep for your first vehicle. So all through high school and college, I hoped that one day that I, like my father, would have a Jeep Wrangler. And so for years, I dreamed of everything that I would do, the ways that I would customize my Jeep, just what my dream Jeep would be. And then in 2014, I finally bought a Jeep Wrangler. And I set out to customizing it and making it exactly what I hoped for it to be. In fact, I put almost as much money back into the Jeep customizing it as I did when I paid for it. I put a lift kit on it and I put bigger tires and bigger wheels on it. And of course, when you have wider tires, you have to have wider fender flares. So I put bigger fender flares on it and I redid the interior and I put a new top on it and I put a new front and rear bumper on it and I put a winch on the front and my dad bought me some KC lights to go on the front of my front on my front bumper and it was beautiful. It was everything that I hoped it would be. And then in 2017 I met Kayla and I began to hope for new things. And one of those new things that I began to hope for was a four-door truck. So that when we have kids and we go to the beach for vacation, we can pile in the truck, throw the stuff in the bed, and we can head down to the beach. You see the result is parked out in the parking lot today. But there were some obstacles to me getting my new hope and my new dream. One of those obstacles was Kayla needed a more reliable car before I could buy my truck. My mom graciously gave us an old Ford Fusion when we got married. It was such a blessing for the first two years of our marriage, but it also had 250,000 miles on it. So it was not something that we counted on putting kids in one day. So to be able to have my new hope, I sold my old one. I sold the Jeep, we bought the Subaru, and we started saving for the truck. And as soon as we had a down payment, I, at probably a very annoying rate to my wife, began looking for trucks, probably close to a daily basis. And you see the result out in the parking lot. You see, what you hope for drives you, it focuses you, it determines your decision-making. 
Which is why Paul urges the Thessalonians to continue to hope for the return of Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, where is your hope today? What are you hoping for today? And I I don't mean just a new car or a new job or for a relationship to work out the way that you hope that it will. We praise God for those things. They're great. But where is your hope for life? Where is your hope for salvation? Where are you placing your hope for the forgiveness of your sins? Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but you're just hoping if you're a good enough person at the end of your life, the Lord will let you into heaven. You'll be able to earn your way in. If you're just good enough, if you do just enough good things, my friend, you cannot do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. Or maybe... Maybe your hope is in just making enough money to get all the stuff you want, all the things you want in life, and then you'll be satisfied. You cannot buy satisfaction. You cannot buy your salvation. It only comes through Jesus. Or is your hope today like the Thessalonians was firmly in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In his sinless life, in his death on the cross that paid the price of the sins for the world and in his resurrection that brings us eternal life. You see, the Thessalonians were able to endure suffering and to endure persecution because their hope was firmly in Jesus Christ and in who he is. And to know this hope, to know this life, all you have to do is surrender to Jesus and begin to follow after him. So Paul, in chapter 1, he urges the Thessalonians to stand firm in persecution and suffering. In chapter 2, he urges them to stand firm in their hope of Christ's return. And then in chapter 3, he urges them to stand firm in spiritual disciplines. Paul now urges the Thessalonians to stand firm in prayer. He asks them to pray for the gospel and to pray for himself. He asked them to pray that he would be delivered from wicked and evil men. But before he asked for prayer for himself, he asked them to pray for the gospel to continue to advance and to be received. You see, Paul is totally dependent upon God for both of these things. Because Paul knows that only God can save him from these evil and wicked men. And he knows that only the Holy Spirit of God can lead people to salvation. Only the Holy Spirit can lead people to receive the truth of who Jesus is and to put their faith in Him and follow after Him. And so the way Paul asks for prayer here in the Greek is actually in the present tense. So Paul is asking for the Thessalonians to constantly, to continue on praying for the gospel to advance. He's asking for them to make praying for the gospel advancing and being received a priority. This isn't just Paul saying, hey, pray once that the gospel will advance. Or pray a couple of times for these lost people. During our prayer service at 9.30 this morning, Nathan led it. And we spent part of that time praying for the salvation of the lost. 
And it's so easy for us to pray, maybe for a little while, for someone that we know that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe for a week or two, we're faithful to pray for them. But then as so often happens, and and I'm guilty of this myself, we kind of fall off. Other things come up in life, and maybe we stop praying for that person. And yet Paul says, keep praying. Don't stop praying for the advancement of the gospel and for people to put their faith in Jesus because hope only comes through Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. They read, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. And finally, in this letter, Paul urges the believers not to be idle. And when he says, don't be idle, he's not just, talk, he's not just saying, hey, don't be lazy. Apparently, there are believers who just didn't work. They didn't work to provide for themselves. They didn't work for the betterment of the community. And Paul is urging the believers to lovingly Work hard as Jesus did. To follow Christ's example by working hard for the glory of God. So what does that look like? Students, that looks like working hard in school and doing your best even if you don't like school. It doesn't mean you have to get straight A's and be perfect, but it means you work hard and you do your best so that when your friend comes up to you and says, hey, why are you working so hard? You can say, because of my Savior. And you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Adults, it looks like working hard and doing your best at whatever job God has given you so that your co-workers see your work ethic and they wonder, why is this person different? Why doesn't this person slack off like the rest of us when you can get by with doing less? It doesn't mean you have to do everything, but it means what you do, follow Christ's example and work hard for the glory of God to provide for yourself and for the betterment of the community. You see, I firmly believe that God has given us the jobs that he's given us. He's given us the finances that he gives us, not just to be hoarded up and used for ourselves, but to be given to those in need, to be used to support missionaries, to be given to the advancement of the gospel. So work hard at whatever job God has given you to the glory of God. How can we apply 2 Thessalonians to our lives today? I want to give you two ways. The first is live out your hope for Christ's return. Live as those who have hope, no matter what you face in life. We have hope because we know that Christ is coming back. And we know that when he does, he will speak and evil will forever be destroyed. And he will establish his kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. And in that place, there will be no suffering. There will be no sin. There will be no death. There will be no separation from loved ones. And we will be with those saints who have gone on before us. And I 
I'm so looking forward to that day. Because on that day, we will be in the presence physically of our Savior. And I also look forward to that day. Because I will get to see my grandfathers again. So live out your hope for Christ's return. And we learned last week that that means making disciples. How do we do this? Well, it begins with establishing relationships and friendships with lost people. Building up friendships with people who do not know Jesus. Spending time with them so that you can have gospel conversations with them. The people you work with, your neighbors, parents. With you, it begins at home with your children. Raising them up to follow the Lord and to love His Word and to obey His commands. Making disciples is how we live out our hope for Christ's return. And the second way that we can apply Second Thessalonians today is to develop good spiritual disciplines or good spiritual habits. And I want to share three of those with you. The first is prayer. Paul requests prayer in this letter But in this short three-chapter letter, three times Paul prays for the church in Thessalonica. He prays for the believers three times. You see, prayer is not something that's just reserved for dinner time or for bedtime or for when you want something. Prayer is a discipline that brings our will and our heart and our desires in line with the heart of God. It should not be an afterthought. It should be our first thought and if this is new for you i encourage you to come next week at 9 30 for our prayer service as we get together and pray can i tell you, you you don't have to have perfect words to pray because we're just talking to our father so that our will is in line with his the next spiritual discipline is to work well for god's glory work hard for god's glory and then lastly Regularly be in the Word and memorize Scripture. When I say regularly be in the Word, I don't mean just have read my Bible as a checklist on your daily to-do list. When I say regularly be in the Word, ideally this is a daily time that you set aside for just you and God. And I understand, that's a challenge. We live in a fast-paced, maybe too fast-paced world. But we should regularly set aside time to be alone with God. It doesn't have to be an hour. It doesn't have to be two hours. It can be 15 minutes a day where you open up your Bible and you say, God, speak to me. This is just my time with you. And you listen for his voice. You listen for him to speak to you. I encourage you to do it in the morning. Before I got ready to leave the house this morning, I sat down with a cup of coffee and I opened up the word. And I spent time with God. I I didn't even read through the message because I knew if I read through my notes, I'd be thinking about now. And I wouldn't be listening to the voice of God. So I opened up the book of Proverbs and I read Proverbs 13. And And I just sat in the presence of God. That's what regular time in the word is. And parents, I encourage you, grandparents, model this for your children. Let your children see that time with God is more important to you than other things. 
Let your children see that you are willing to say no to other things so that you can say yes to time with God. Because if they don't see it at home, if they don't see you doing it, it won't become a discipline and a habit for them. Don't count on me, your youth pastor, to be the main one to teach your children to open up the word and spend time with God. They only get to see me do that maybe a week out of the year at summer camp. Let them see you do that. And as you spend time with God in the word, memorize scripture. Hide God's word in your heart so that you will not sin against him. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.